there ought to be a way to look each other in the eye to see we're all in this together and put our thoughts of victory aside you're listening to Mr. Radio and I'm your host Marshall Today's guest is an American singer-songwriter, novelist, and educator. He was a big part of the 1980s folk revival in Greenwich Village clubs, performing at the Speakeasy, the Bottom Line, and Folk City. He also co-founded the Greenwich Village Folk Festival. His songs have been covered by Dave Van Ronk, Sean Colvin, Four Bitchin' Babes, Jonathan Edwards, Garnett Rogers, Joe Jenks, and others. Although usually labeled a folk singer, his musical styles include rock, pop, country, light jazz, and blues. His album, Later That Night, was named Best Local CD of 2014 by the Palm Beach Post and reached the top 10 in the national folk music charts. The late Dave Van Ronk called him one of the best of the singer-songwriters ever to come out of the New York movement. It is my honor to introduce today's guest, Rod McDonald. Welcome to the show, Rod. Hi, Marshall. How are you doing? We opened our show with Every Living Thing, the closing track from your debut album, No Commercial Traffic. I just would like to quote William Rulmut, a writer for All Music Review, and, and he said, by a time when record labels were pursuing vapid synth pop acts, listening to McDonald's catchy folk rock arrangements of his melodic songs with their literate lyrics sung in his clear high tenor, it might have been hard to understand how any A&R person could fail to appreciate his music's commercial appeal. But that's the way the music business was in the early 1980s. Was that a problem in the 1980s? Did you have problems getting this produced? Well, I didn't have any problems making the album myself. I suppose what he means is that, you know, the uh, corporate music business wasn't interested in the style of music so much that people like me were making. I think that's probably accurate. Were you uh, influenced by this hard-to-get promotion from these publicists? Did it give you more drive to try to get this going? Some of the reviews then and, and since have, have always been pretty amazing to me. <laughs> I wasn't aware that this was a problem in the 1980s. Well, I mean, I don't. I I understand what he's saying. What he's saying is that is that I think in an earlier era, like the 60s or early 70s, people doing this kind of music routinely got record contracts and all of that with big labels. That kind of stopped happening in my time, with a couple exceptions. A couple people did pretty well, but a lot a lot fewer. The interest just wasn't there. I, I was working on a new CD, and just as an experiment, I sent a couple tracks of it around to some record labels to see if there'd be any interest in One of them wrote me back. Most of them didn't respond at all. One of them wrote me back and said, um, I, I, sh- I'm, I still remember the letter. I shudder to think what the giant corporation I work for would do to this music, she wrote me. I guess that didn't put you in a good mood. <laughs> I never really have done what I've done for the sake of the marketplace. I just, I've always kind of done it as an artist, just trying to be honest with people and, and write a good song. So I, I guess I, I've just taken the chips where they fell. How did you come about putting no commercial traffic together? How did that 
come together. No commercial traffic was actually financed by the owner of the speakeasy in New York City, the music club that I was playing at a lot. People were starting to make their own LPs. I'd reached a point where sitting around waiting for a record label to discover me was just wasting time and, and good years of my life. And so uh, I was playing at this club, the speakeasy, a lot. And I would go over there and just play late at night sometimes for you know whoever was there. In addition to the advertised concerts that I did that a lot of people came to, I would just show up sometimes late at night and play. And, and one night I played a set and the owner of the speakeasy said to me that, I have all these, I have all these albums that people have given me, but I don't have one from you. Why not? And I said, Well, I haven't made one. And he, and he said, Why not? And I said, Well, I don't know. It costs a lot of money, and just haven't. He looked at me and he said, Well, I'll give you the money. I said, Yeah, sure, okay, you know. And then he showed up at my apartment one day and handed me a bunch of cash and said, Book a studio, get some musicians, make a record. So I did. You know, I kept all the receipts. And, did everything you're supposed to do, and that's how we made the album. That's a great story. I, I like that story. You, you had a second album. It included a recording of White Buffalo. I know that gets a lot of audience requests. What was your inspiration for White Buffalo? You know, it just sort of happened. Really, I just woke up one day and wrote it. But I think that it was the product of some a lot of thinking I'd been doing about the idea of White Buffalo, what it represented, uh, you know, a kind of alternate view of, of belief, of faith. I was interested, still am, in Native American philosophy and the Native American philosophy that life is all around us, that energy is all around us, that everything is interconnected. I was very interested in a lot of, in, of that. And I, and I was just beginning to educate myself about it. And I, and I think that White Buffalo was kind of like the, the doorway that I first walked through when I became interested in, in this idea. You also met a ceremonial chief, did you not? Yeah, well, he was the kind of like the uh, official leader of, of the Pine Ridge Sioux in uh, South Dakota. If you remember the violent standoff that wounded me in about 1990, well, that's the earlier, 1980, 81 or something like that, he was the person who diffused the violent standoff who got the, who got everybody to back down and saved a lot of lives. And he was by that time pretty old. He was in his early nineties and he was, he was the person who officiated at their ceremonies, their dances. They, you know, uh, native Americans have, some of them have public dances to invoke the spirits. And, and he was the person who officiated at those dances. He had been a lifelong, um, healer for his people, medicine healer. How did you come about to meet him? Well, at first I read his book. Somebody gave me a copy of it, and it was at a kind of a critical time in, in my own life, and, and it was a great help to me to read it. In 1981, I was traveling across the country, and I, a friend and I drove to the Pine Ridge Reservation, and, we, and there was a public dance going on, so we went to it, and he was there. A guy came over to me, like a young a young man, I remember his name was Johnny Broken Nose, was his name. <laughs> and he walked over to me and he, he said, uh, you know, uh, what do you guys, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't an aggressive thing. He just kind of came over and he said, so what are you guys doing, you know, who are you? And I told him that I had, uh, that I had uh, read Frank Fool's Crow's book and I, 
was hoping to meet him. That I just would really like to meet him. He said, oh, that can be arranged. And he said, wait here. And he brought him over and introduced him to me. That's how that photograph was taken. And then uh, uh, in 1985, I went back and I spent, I don't know, a few days, a week or so on his farm, just hung out and, you know, talked with him a few times and met some of the people that were part of the community. I'd like to move to another aspect of your songwriting career. And I just want to read something that the Broward... Palm Beach New Times' Lee Zimmerman wrote about your song, Joe Public. He said, McDonald spares no effort when it comes to ripping on the right wing and those in the political elite. I was going to play that track, but would you like to introduce it for us? You know, Joe Public, I think, is, is a song just trying to understand <laughs> where people are coming from. That's all I can really say. I don't think it's the political elite, actually. I think it's more about the the run-of-the-mill people who soak up this drumbeat of noise from the from the right-wing media. That's really all I can uh, say about Joe Public. I feel a certain, I don't know what the word is, pathos about people like Joe Public. They're well-meaning, sincere people in a way, and they have a lot on their mind. And they, they hear this, this stuff that they're fed, you know. And I, I mean, even now, uh, look what this thing that happened a couple of weeks ago at the Capitol building. Those people, uh, I feel that they're just completely misguided, that they're being fed this static of lies, and they respond accordingly to it. So I guess that's what I think inspired Joe Public, was just hearing this wall of noise coming at them. And most of the time, I avoid it. I just I just tune it out. You know, sometimes yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get my tires rotated, and it's, and it's blasting away in the office or I'll go to the doctor's office and it's blasting away in the waiting room and it's kind of sickening. Why don't we take a listen to Joe Public? Joe Public smokes two packs a day Drives home from work on the interstate highway After drinking three beers cell phone in hand He's doing 80 in his oversized van But Joe Public's not afraid of dying from tobacco or drinking or even his driving Got the radio on, the reception is clear He's hearing all the things he should fear Joe Public is afraid of Al-Qaeda They're coming to get him sooner or later Joe Public is afraid of terror It keeps getting closer in the rearview mirror And all those illegals crossing the border Crawling through the desert coming for his daughter Joe Public's got a lot on his mind Joe Public makes 35000 Has two kids in high school Trying for college He walks in the door And their music is playing He can't understand a thing that it's saying But Joe's not afraid that his kids Will find the handgun where he keeps it hit Joe's afraid of the United Nations Gun laws, gay rights, and peace demonstrations So he went to Home Depot, bought duct tape and plastic In case the real enemy does something drastic Like mailing anthrax and causing a panic Or requiring everyone to learn to speak Spanish Joe's ready for freedom to happen When the government comes to take away his weapons Joe Public's got a lot on his mind Joe Public got asthma at 40 His health 
insurance costs more than his mortgage. The state stopped testing cars for emissions. Joe's glad cause he would have had to fix it. But Joe's not afraid of pollution. Thinks less regulation is the only solution. And don't get him started on health care. Everyone knows that's a socialist nightmare. Joe's down with the troops. He supports every mission. He'll keep his gas under four bucks a gallon. But why do they hate us? He can't understand. When we never, ever did nothing to them. You can't wait for the next election to re-elect the guy who took away your pension. Joe Public's got a lot on his mind. That was Joe Public from the album Later That Night, performed by my guest, Rod McDonald. That is definitely a timely piece. How did you start your musical education? I grew up in a family where music was pretty prevalent. We had a lot of records. I had an older sister who started buying 45s when I was a little kid. And we sang in the car. You know, all of it. My mom had a lot of jazz records. My dad had, had some records of his own that he really liked. And it was just always around. And then... I started out actually as a slide trombonist in the school band. I played slide trombone for a few years. I gave that up uh, at one point, but not long after that, I started to play the guitar. And it was around the time that singer-songwriters were pretty much heard on the radio all the time. And, and I just really liked that music, and I started to learn to play it. I taught myself to play my favorite songs on the guitar. and just kept on going. You have a novel, The Open Mic, which is set in Greenwich Village. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Well, The Open Mic is kind of a fictionalized memoir about what it was like when I first was hitting the streets in the village trying to get noticed. And, and the club Folk City had a, had a weekly open mic, in it, and it kind of led to a, a group of people that, you know, we were hanging around together and writing songs. I wanted to write a book that was about that period of time in my life when I was just starting out trying to figure out how to write songs and what to do on stage and the people that I met and what it was like. And I guess that's that book. Like I say, it's a fictionalized memoir, but it, it's based on my real experiences and my view of that environment, you know, and the people that I knew. And some of those people are, are some of my longest, you know, pals today. I had gone through school i had gone through school you know college and all of that and and yet it, most of my longest lasting relationships have come out of greenwich village in a way it, it just it was like going back to high school you know and learning to do it all over again do you have plans for another book i have another book coming out this year it's not about greenwich village it's a different kind of novel altogether it's more like a fake hollywood movie i think in a way but uh it's an adventure story of a, of a young guy. It's called The American Gorillas, G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A-S. It's actually in production as we speak. It should be out sometime, I don't know, maybe this spring. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be looking forward to that. You have a new CD, and it's titled Boulevard. How did you come about putting this together? This is a collection of my very earliest songs. When I first started playing music in New York City, I, I was really kind of a beginner as a performer, and I, and I started kind of tentatively playing in coffee houses, and I'd written maybe a half a dozen songs before I started really digging at all. 
And then a funny thing happened. I went to Newport, Rhode Island. I was an inactive reservist in the U.S. Naval JAG Corps. I got called up to Newport to go to officer's training school. And while I was there, I started playing in a waterfront bar just kind of to get through this part of my life. I, it was going, it was difficult. And I lucked into a three-night or four-night-a-week singing job on the water, uh, waterfront in Newport. Suddenly, I was playing all the time, and I started writing, not for that job, because that was really all covers, but I started just writing songs. And at the end of that summer, I, I became acutely aware that I really wanted to do this going forward. And that was the first time, really, that that had happened to me, that I, that I was really sure that this is what I want to do. And so I, uh, I started gigging around New York in clubs and coffee houses and that's when I started going to Folk City and Kenny's Castaways and clubs. Well, anyway, fast forward to uh, through the years and that group of songs that I started out as playing for the first couple of years, that was my mainstay of my repertoire and then, I, and then I started writing songs about what went on in my life and what was going on around me and, and, and the years kind of went by, a few years went by. Really, about 10 years went by, and I, and I had never made an album all that time. I had never made a recording. I'd made a few demos, but nothing much. That was re Nothing was released. And I was thinking about all these songs a couple of years ago, about two, three years ago, and I started thinking I'd really like to record them, but I wasn't sure I knew how, that I could remember them clearly enough. And then um, my sister, my oldest sister, who'd been kind of helping me out through the years. And, and my mother, uh, who was 100, all passed away uh, within a year of each other, both of them. And when I was cleaning out my mom's house, I found a notebook that all had all these old songs typed out, the lyrics, and even some sheet music. And then I got together with a friend of mine in New York who had kept an archive of some of my music through the early years of my life. And I, we dug out some old recordings, and I started to reconstruct the song. After my mom died, we had a cellar house, so I went over there one night, the night before we sold it, and I set up a, a PA and a recording equipment, and I just recorded all the songs in one night. Did, you know, three, four versions of each song. Took a break, did another three, four versions of each song, and then started mixing it, and uh, with the help of Mark Dan, who's my longtime bass player and owns a couple professional recording studios. You know, we got a uh, good quality recording out of it. So that's how it came about. That's how it got uh, put together. And so you recorded all of this in, in your mom's house? Yeah, yeah. In one night. That probably put some more vibes into it for the entire production. I'd like to play uh, a track from that, Broadway I Know. Care to tell us a little bit about it before I play it? Well, when I first got to New York, I didn't live in the village. I lived uh, in various neighborhoods, mostly up uh, uptown on the west side. One of my first years, I lived on, I'm trying to remember where it was. I think, I think that it was 157th and Riverside Drive, way uptown. You know, I, I just used to have to walk up and down Broadway to get back and forth to where I was going and got to know a few people locally and soaked up the vibe. I just thought it was kind of a, an interesting education, seeing what different aspect of New York City. People think, oh, Broadway, it's all bright lights and show business. After show dinners at uh, Sardi's and all of that stuff, and yet here I was on a, a different Broadway altogether. Let's take a listen to Broadway I Know. 
Suzette Crepe ain't got no place, got no place to call it home. I'm a sucker for a mango shake and a belly full of provolone. Don't buy my dinners with a credit card, just picking up the quarters in my own backyard. Working on a sidewalk for an extra bar of chocolate. Hey, you got to win if you even show. Don't buy your ticket till it's time to go. And they say it so on the Broadway I know. On the Sunday streets, the old men meet, lining piles of dominoes. Oh, the lucky man with the top hand Calling, hey, now, away it goes There's some music in a doorway and I gotta dance Senorita, won't you come on, give me just one chance Gliding down the sidewalk for an extra chunk of romance Hey, you got to win if you even show Don't buy your ticket till it's time to go and they said so on the Broadway I know And hey in the window they're crawling down the fire holes running across the rooftops Bet they didn't teach you about that in Great Neck And I don't understand a single word of Spanish I can't call a spade a spade and sometimes I stand out like a white man's hand out Sitting out the world he made I can cruise through the stickball game around my feet Slowing through the traffic when I cross the street Smile at being left aware Want to be in this town Hey, you've got to win If you even show Don't buy your ticket till it's time to go and they said so on the Broadway I know Yeah, you got to win if you even show Don't buy your ticket till it's time to go I know it's so on the Broadway I know That was Broadway I Know from the album Boulevard, performed by my guest, Rod McDonald. I have seen you perform live at the New York State's Falcon Ridge Concert Series, as well as more intimate settings like the Hurdy Gurdy Folk Music Club in New Jersey, the Turning Point in Piermont, New York. And now you're doing live gigs on Facebook. And you seem to have, I'm really impressed with this, you have seamlessly transitioned from your face to face on stage life persona to the same easygoing demeanor and rapport with your virtual Facebook audiences. For instance, last night I was listening to you singing COVID-19 Breakdown. I really enjoyed that. Was this a difficult transition going from live to virtual? It is a different art form almost. You have to kind of motivate yourself <laughs> in a different way. I mean, you don't get the instant feedback of a live show of a live audience in the same rooms. It's a, a little bit like practicing, except that you, you, have to, you have to stay focused. You have to remember you're actually playing for people, so you, you're in the moment, you know. 
I'm glad to know you that it's uh, that it seems good on the other end because you really don't get the feedback that you that you get in a live from a live audience. Although I read the comments and and I know that people have really warmed up to it. It's it's turned into a really good experience. When I first started, you know, I kind of felt guilty having such a good time. <laughs> but it, I, I did. I mean, I thought, God, you know, there's so much misery going around about this thing, and people are suffering and dying, and, and here I am, you know, playing playing this music. And I didn't intend to. I mean, I really didn't intend to. I was sitting there eating dinner one night with my wife and kids, and just as a lark, I went on Facebook on my iPhone, and I got out my guitar. Well, I, I didn't even have my guitar out. I just went on my Facebook page and went on on my iPhone uh, uh, and sat there and was just seeing how it worked, wondering, you know, how it actually worked that you got on the, on the Internet doing this. I'd never done it. And suddenly there were like 30 people watching out of nowhere, like at like 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. And somebody posted a comment and said, why don't you sing a song? So I got my guitar and I sang a song and more people signed on. And by the end of about a half an hour, I think I had five to 600 people watching. It was astounding to me. And so um, I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll come back next week at nine o'clock on Sunday night. And, and the same thing happened again. All kinds of people signed on. So I just started doing it each week. It just kind of evolved into a regular thing. It's gone viral then. And, you know, <laughs> you know, you said you felt guilty about it, but I think you're giving people pleasure, and uh, that's important. We're slowly running out of time here, but I was interested in one track that you have from your album later that night. It's a, what I think is a very timely piece called White Flower. Can you just tell us a little bit about that for people who might not be familiar with that track? Well, it's a story of a, of a Klan rally um, that got sort of taken over by a group of comedians or of, of clowns. That's the story of it. I came across a children's book by a guy named David Lamott, an illustrated children's book that was the poem. I just thought it was great. I thought it was a great poem, a great bit of storytelling, and a fun story. And I and I wrote him, and I asked him if he would allow me to write music to it. And he, he said, absolutely, go for it. I didn't know when I wrote to him that he actually is quite a good singer-songwriter himself. But I, I saw it as a book. I, I came across it as a, as a children's book. So I did, and then I sent it to him, and he said, this is great. Can I play this for people? And I said, sure, you know. So we gave each other permission to, to do this. And uh, I went ahead and recorded it. It's quite long, you know, as a song, but it's, but it's, I think, a really great lyric. And I'm very proud to say I did not change a single syllable of his lyric. It's a very timely piece, for sure. We are almost out of time, but before we leave, I'd like to, at the end, play In Every Dream. But if somebody listening wants to purchase your music, where should they go for this? Well, Boulevard is... On all the sites, Amazon, iTunes, you know, Rhapsody, Pandora, all of those things. In fact, most of my CDs are. But to purchase copies of it, the easiest way is to go to rodmcdonald.com. you got to spell it M-A-C-D-O-N-A-L-D, rodmcdonald.com. And there's a, a, a store page there, and everything is easy to get. Physical CDs, downloads, those MP3s, all of it. So that's a good place to go. Rod McDonald, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to 
to speak with me. I'd like to end with In Every Dream. If you'd like to say something about it, you have 20 seconds to say something about it. Well, In Every Dream is a, a love song, of course. But actually, what's important to me about it is I, I feel that it was one of the first songs that really showed me that I could write. It's kind of a you know unusual piece of music a little bit. And I was just sitting around doodling on it on the guitar, and I started thinking I, I should really make a song out of this. And that's kind of how it happened. Uh, it, it was a stepping stone in learning how to write songs. Thanks again for talking with me, and we're going to end with In Every Dream. listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio. Now every time I look into another pair of eyes, all comes back that I'm living lies, comparing her to you. I've been to L.A. and just got bored with empty heads. Liquor stores and the walking dead And lonely sunshine too In every dream I see What could never be And still I have you lying next to me If I could be tonight Oh